When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, the rarest books and the best collectibles. Not many things that are 500 years old have survived to the present day, but there are plenty of books that have. So we were very quick to say, we'd love to see it. Can you bring it or send it to us? And the book arrives. And I opened it and immediately said, that's not right. A copy, a complete copy has not come up for sale for some time. But when it does, we're talking tens of millions of dollars, I have no doubt. Book collecting is really a, a pursuit of love. If you don't enjoy what the things that you're collecting, then I doubt it's going to do much for you. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. It helps out the show. And more than anything, we just like hearing from people. So our first guest is someone that I've wanted to talk to for a long time because I think this topic slash industry is just fascinating because not only is it interested in terms of how he finds these things, how much they cost, the lengths that people will go to to counterfeit them, but it's really a journey back into our history. This is Rare Bookseller. Tom Ailing. So what what makes a book rare? Mm. So in the in the book trade, rare book is a relatively modern moniker that we use to describe a, a book. Um, and it's conferring not just a sense of, of scarcity that something is is hard to find or doesn't exist in many copies, but also an, an element of it being sought after. There are many, many books in the world that people aren't interested in. And, you know, you might have the only copy of a book in the world, but if there's no one that wants to buy it, then it's it, it might be in, in absolute terms a, a rare book, but it's not going to sort of fall into the category of a rare book when we talk about what books are sought after and what books are, you know, highly collectible. Um, so in our sense, a rare book is is anything where you've got a, 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 a base level of scarcity that is going to, in some way, drive, you know, value and interest. And then, you know, a level of, a level of demand for it alongside that. Um, and that could be because the author's famous. That could be because the, um, the content is, is hugely important in, you know, to our history or our literature or to a contribution of a field like science and medicine. Um, it could be that it's a, a book of extraordinary beauty, beautifully illustrated, beautifully bound, beautifully designed. Um, so it's the, the sort of overall moniker of, of rare books is is quite a broad church. Um, and certainly the trade itself comprises not just printed books, but 
anything from fully blown illuminated manuscripts to, you know, little scraps of paper that a professor left in a cupboard 200 years ago. Is this a big industry? Like, I can't imagine there being a lot of people who do this. I would say it's not a big industry, but there are probably more booksellers out there than you think. You know, there was a time 100 years ago where you could drive through Britain and every single market town would have a antiquarian bookshop of some description. What's happened to the trade in the last, you know, in the last sort of 30 years is is a decline in those bricks and mortar shops and those businesses selling sort of a more broad general antiquarian stock. So there's lots of people still dealing in books, but they might be sort of one one man or one woman bands dealing from home, selling books online, working with a small, very niche group of customers with, say, a, a special interest. Where are books kind of in the collectibles hierarchy, right? Like if one is baseball cards and mm. 10 is gold diamond rings worn by the queen, queen herself, right? Like yeah. where is kind of books on that collectible hierarchy? Well, I, I would say they're extraordinarily good value compared to other objects, but I might say that, um, you know. Um, they are, I would say, they're quite awkward objects to deal in because often they're, they take quite a lot of hard work to work out it, exactly what they are and need quite a lot of expertise to be able to deal in them. If you come to our shop, you know, there are books on the shelf for 10, 15, 20 pounds, and there are books for hundreds of thousands of pounds. So even within one specialist business, you have quite a wide, you know, wide range of prices. But there aren't, you know, printed books tend not to reach the sort of tens of millions of pounds price range. You know, there I suppose might be an argument that, you know, a fine Shakespeare first folio or a complete Gutenberg Bible would now get into the, you know, um, nine-figure price range. But they're the exceptions rather than the rule. For the most part, you know, the vast majority of a specialist book dealer's stock is going to, you know, maybe average out at a few thousand pounds with a wide range from, you know, tens of thousands to, to um, tens of pounds to tens of thousands. So how does the kind of the process work in the sense that, like, are you going out and finding these books? Are people bringing to them? Yeah, it's, well, it sort of works differently for, you know, whoever you're, whoever you're dealing with. But for the most part, we look to buy books that, that we know about, that we're specialists in. So our specialism in the broadest sense is English literature from Chaucer to just around about Harry Potter. So that's a wide scope of several hundred years um, that comprises a, a lot of printed books. We deal in other areas as well, but that's the, the broad specialty. Um, so we know what we're doing with those books and where we see a book, you know, a first edition of a famous work of literature we know what we're looking for, we know what it's worth, and we'll want to try and buy it for stock, whether we have a customer immediately to sell it to or, or not. Um, that sounds quite simple, but what it actually involves in practice is an awful lot of looking. My time is probably spent 90% of it looking for books, and only about 10% of it actually sort of selling books. We probably look at maybe 10,000 books for every one book that we purchase for, for our stock or for a customer. Um, 
So it's an awful lot of, you know, rifling through huge libraries, massive auctions, things that come into the shop, house visits that we go out and do um, to then select not just the right book, but the right copy of the right book. Why is that such a disparity between what you look at and what you buy? Because the book's not good enough, not going to sell it, not rare enough, not exactly what you want. Like, what's the reason that you're usually ruling them out? Well, there are an awful lot of books in the world, um, and not many of them are valuable. Um, and certainly not many of them are rare. You know, if I, if I was buying 10,000 in every 15,000 I looked at, then um, one could hardly consider them rare books. Um, for the most part, I mean, it could be that it just isn't what we what we do. But for the most part, it's a question of quality. So what we're looking for in a book is um, originality. So is it the first printing? Um, integrity. So is it complete and as issued on publication day, whether that was 20 years ago or 250 years ago? Um, and... Uh, very much related to to integrity is condition so that counts for completeness but also is it an is it an attractive copy um is it in nice condition is it sound is it about to fall apart or is it you know still in the original publisher's binding from 1820 um and then there's a whole slew of slightly unquantifiable things that a book can possess that might make it more interesting. So it may have been owned by somebody significant. It may have their marks of provenance or their annotations. It might be a presentation copy that the author has given to somebody significant. Um, if it's a if it's a very early book, say from the 1400s or 1500s, it might bear the marks of an early reader. Now, even if we have no idea who this reader is, seeing their annotations and underlinings and marginalia in a book of that age is telling us how people interacted with a book four, five hundred years ago. And that's hugely valuable to um, to historians, to collectors, um, in building an idea of the, the history of a book. Um, and and really that list of unquantifiable things of that nature is is as long as you like, because you don't know what you're going to find when you open up a book or look at it closely. How difficult is it to find something in good condition? Right, like I, I would imagine it had to be preserved already. If we're talking about books that are hundreds of years old, yeah, I mean the, the history of book to even find one that's still good. Mm. I mean the history of book collecting is a long one. People have collected books for um, centuries, if not millennia. They may may not have collected them in the same way that we do now. They certainly didn't. But book collecting in its current form, um, collecting say important copies of important books. Um, has been a factor in the book trade for for a couple hundred years. Um, and as a result, there are books that, you know, I can track. If, I, if a book reaches me, often I can have a look at the ownership records that I can find inside the book, marry them up with auction records, and I can see each of the five, six, seven, eight owners who have owned the book in the last 200 years. Um, so th- there is some way you've got that solid chain of provenance. There was a wonderful example... Um, of, a, of a manuscript I was working on, um, not all that recently, but relatively recently, um, which was a manuscript by the poet Thomas Gray, um, who is most famous for writing an elegy on a country churchyard. And after he died, 
somebody inherited all of his things. He didn't have children. And after they died, someone inherited all of his things. And then all of his things were sold at auction. So we have the auction catalogue of that sale, and we can read an annotated copy of that catalogue that you can find online for free. And you can not only see what everything sold for, but you can see the names of the purchasers. And then you can follow that again to another book sale a few years later, where the person who bought all of Thomas Gray's manuscripts, which were, um, uh, which were sort of separate scraps of paper, had them bound up into one single book and had it sold as a single book. And then there's an auction a few years after that, where that book is broken up into individual pieces of paper and sold again, each manuscript being sold individually. And that collection, the person who bought the manuscript from that sale, it went to their house on the River Thames, quite near to our bookshop, and stayed there for 100 and 150 years until we bought their library a few years ago. And in it was this thing. And going off nothing but the title of the poem written in Thomas Gray's hand, we can give this one piece of paper, you know, a, a, a history spanning a few hundred years. That is, I would imagine, like, right, that the book is interesting, but the history of the book is probably just as interesting mm, in a lot of circumstances. Yeah. How, how, how can you tell if it's real? Is that a huge kind of factor in that world? We are less exposed to fakes and forgeries than other collecting areas. Say, certainly, it's far less common than painting. Um, but we do encounter it. Um, you encounter it mostly, I would say, with forged signatures. You know, if you've got a copy of a book and then you've got a copy of a book signed by an author, that can increase the value. You know, it can add one zero to the end of it. It can add a few zeros to the end of it. It can, in some cases, if the author was particularly prolific at signing books, add no value whatsoever. Um, so one encounters forged signatures not infrequently. I wouldn't say most weeks, but certainly every couple of weeks I'll be looking through, say, an auction catalogue, and there'll be a picture of a signed book and immediately say, no, that's wrong. Um, but in terms of forging an entire book, that's a very difficult thing to do. And it has been done. There have been a couple of very famous and, and high-profile cases um, in the not-too-distant past where people have literally forged an entire book by essentially using 3D printing to recreate a, a form of type and then print on treated paper to make it look like old paper, bind it up, and, and fake an entire printed book from the um, 16th century. Um, that's an awful lot of work, and you've got to... I suppose I, I don't know much about the, the economy of criminals, but you've got to um, forge a jolly expensive book to, for it to reward the time, it, the time it would take and the risk of being found out. And in that case, it, it was found out, but not before it, it had already changed hands for a, a large sum of money. Yeah, that would be. It's not like you're going to spend all that time forging books that sell for like £100 or $200 or something like that, right? Like you kind of yeah. got to go big, but then if you go big, everybody knows exactly what that mm -hmm. thing is supposed yeah. to look like. Because you'd have to replicate that would explain what... the, the sort of same printing processes that people were using hundreds of years ago. Um, and that's 
tough. <laughs> it's re really tough. And, and you know, if you think about printing itself, that of what we would call the hand press period, which is a period where to print a book, you have to arrange every single piece of type, every single letter is an individual piece. And you have to arrange that in a frame in, in reverse so that it prints the words the right way round and then print every single sheet of the book. This whole process would take a year to print an edition of, you know, 500 copies um, and then have it bound up. Um, it's a hugely involved, um, involved process. And, and part of the, the, the beauty of collecting books is that that remarkable process and that remarkable innovation um, produces things of great beauty. Um, but it's, it's a lot of work to do. When, when you have customers come in, are they usually, are they looking for kind of the next big thing, right? Are they looking for a book that is rare and that is going to be valuable? Or are they usually looking for a very specific book? There, there are people who are trying to predict the future. Um, I tend to counsel against that because it's very difficult to know speculating is 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 a dangerous game i think in in most fields but in a field where you're essentially saying will this author or this book be popular in you know 50 100 years that's tough to know but the other thing that's tough to know is will this book be rare in 50 or 100 years um because a, a book published today by a very famous and popular author might have a print run in the hundreds of thousands of copies and such a and a book produced in that number it's going to take a very very long time for it to be hard to find or an awful lot of wanton destruction um so for the most part people coming into our shop and what we advise people to do when they're building collections is to have a look at the market that we're in today um and with with our experience you know i look at famous sales of great book collections say that were sold at auction in the in the 80s and 90s and you look at the prices that they made then and what people said about those prices and people were saying you know it's ridiculous that someone's paying this sum of money for that book you'd buy every single book there today at that price in a heartbeat um so what what tends to be the best way of going about it is to is to take the market as it is but also Rather than buying a book because you think it's going to be valuable tomorrow, buy a book because it's of interest to you. That should be what's guiding um, book collections. You know, book collecting is really a, a pursuit of love. If you don't enjoy what the things that you're collecting, then I doubt it's going to do much for you. Um, so always lead with that. And, you know, when you're investing large sums of money in, in a book, um, it is important that you're not throwing money down the drain. And that's why buying, say, the right copy is important. So a copy in the best condition you can find it, or a copy with the most interesting association, say. Um, and by association, I mean um, it might have been owned by somebody important and therefore be significant. Um, so you, you mentioned Lord of the Rings earlier, actually, and there's a wonderful example of this um, that we have at the moment. We, uh, a few years ago, well, actually, in um, about nine or ten years ago, the editor who published The Lord of the Rings 
died and his library was sold. And included in that library was his set of Lord of the Rings, in beautiful condition, basically pristine, and each volume was signed by J.R.R. Tolkien. And even better than that, not only was the, he the editor that brought the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion into the world, but his father was a publisher and head of the same publishing firm when Tolkien submitted the manuscript of a funny little book called The Hobbit. And one evening, his father took the book home and gave it to him and said, we've just been given this, do you think it's any good? And he read it, he loved it, and basically told his father that he had to publish this book about these funny creatures called hobbits. And that kind of copy, owned by someone so significant in the whole history of the world that Tolkien created, is of an almost... It, it makes the book more than the sum of its parts because its existence and its ownership history starts telling a new story about it. Um, and that's really the sort of copy of a book that gets, um, that gets me excited and the sort of thing that, that I, I try to share that enthusiasm with my customers. So then how much would a book like that sell for? Um, an awful lot of money. I can't tell you what he paid for it, what the, the customer paid for it. Oh. But, I mean, that, I mean a, 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 a signed first edition of The Lord of the Rings is a comfortably a six-figure book um, in whichever currency you want to choose. Is there any indication that the people who buy them actually read them? Uh, yeah, I mean... I would be too nervous to actually read it, to be honest with you. Like, I would encase it in carbonite <laughs> yes star wars reference but like i wouldn't do people actually read these books with somebody like yeah i mean i had a 1500 year old book like i'm not reading that thing yeah um i mean it depends on the book and i suppose it depends on the collector i mean there is something wonderful about reading a first edition of a book and experiencing the same thing that that book's very first readers would have experienced you know when you are holding a copy of the first edition of a study in scarlet the first sherlock holmes book and you're reading it you're experiencing something that was felt by someone who had no idea who sherlock holmes was but books as objects are far sturdier um, than we give them credit for not many things that are 500 years old have survived to the present day, but there are plenty of books that have. Are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? Of course. Uh, start out with kind of the big ones, right? Rarest book you've ever had? Rarest book in the world? That's difficult to say because there are a whole number of books and things that I deal in that are unique. You know, there's only one of them. Um, if you're talking about uh, something we have in the shop at the moment, say, like, um, we have Ian Fleming's final corrected typescript for Diamonds Are Forever, the fourth James Bond book. Um, there is only one typescript with his annotations that exists. So that's totally unique. You can't get rarer than one of one. 
Um, and there are plenty of things of that nature that we deal in that are that are hugely exciting objects to work with. Um, again, rarest book in the world. If we're talking purely on scarcity, then um, then there are plenty of things that that survive in only one copy. There are books, in fact, um, that we know were published and were printed, but no copies survive. Um, my old university professor, Andrew Pettigrew, who runs a program at the University of St. Andrews called the Universal Short Title Catalogue, has a list of these lost books that we can track in auction records or in newspaper advertisements, but there isn't a single copy recorded in any library on the planet. Um, so I suppose a, a zero of one is rarer than a one of one. Um, but there are things of that nature. If we're talking about what people normally mean when they say, what's the rarest thing in the world or what's the rarest thing you've ever sold? Often they really want to know what the most expensive book in the world is, <laughs> or, or which, which again is, Pretty a, much. Is, is a result of that. You know, when we use the moniker rare books, we're talking about scarcity, but we're also talking about demand. You know, it's a supply and demand game. Um, so if, if you're talking about what printed books are the most valuable, um, then one's talking a, a, about the sort of great rarities like uh, the Gutenberg Bible, which is the first book with movable type printed in the West um, from, from 1455. That's a hugely valuable book. Um, a copy, a complete copy has not come up for sale for some time. But when it does, we're, we're talking tens of millions of dollars, I have no doubt. Um, a book like the Shakespeare First Folio, um, which is the first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays, published in 1624. Not a rare book in the absolute terms. There are some 200 copies in different libraries around the world. But the last copy of that to come up for auction, um, the last complete copy of that to come up for auction, sold in New York a couple of years ago now um, for a shade under $10 million. Do you have a personal quest? And I think what they mean by this is like, is there a book that like, man, I have been trying to find this? Oh, there are a lot. That's what keeps you going. You know, that's what that's what makes you do your, you know, your third house call of the week when the first two haven't brought any books. Um, and occasionally, you know, one is um, one is satisfi satisfied. There are there is, you know, a few black tulips, as it were, that would be wonderful to get get one's hands on one day things like um the true first edition of lyrical ballads um by wordsworth and coleridge um which was printed in tiny numbers in bristol and then republished in london the same year um so copies with the bristol title page are fabled rarities I think there's one at the British Library. I'm not sure there are many others anywhere in the world. Th those those great books like Shakespeare Folios and Gutenberg Bibles, um, it would be a real thrill to to have a to have a hand in selling them. But there are there are plenty of other things as well that um, that are perhaps less grand, but very difficult to find. Um, I, I have a personal collection of books um, about the town and university of St. Andrews, which is 
the university that I went to and it's where I fell in love with uh, old and rare books and with book collecting and, and set me on the path to, to be doing what I'm doing. Um, and the printing press came to St Andrews in the, um, in the 1500s. Um, and I would love to own a copy of the very first book printed in St. Andrews. Do you get that? A lot of people that are just like, maybe it's not a rare book, maybe it's not a valuable book, but somebody who is just looking for this very specific thing for a personal or whatever reason. Mm. I had somebody in the shop a couple months ago now, and their father was very good friends with Roald Dahl. And he, he was a doctor who, um, I think, treated one of Dahl's children. And as a gift, Dahl inscribed him a book. I think it was a copy of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Now, these people came into the shop and said, oh, we're looking for a signed copy of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I sort of started, oh, are you looking for a first edition? Are you looking for, you know, the, the British edition or the American edition? Because they're sort of two slightly different things. Um, and they said, no, we're looking for the copy that he gave my father. Um, and I was like, okay. Um, and so we, you know, take down the, the details of her father's name and what was likely to be inscribed and the, the circumstances of the inscription and so on. Um, and that is a book that, you know, I am desperate to find. It's not going to, you know... It's selling it would not, you know, make our year financially, but a book imbued with such personal significance, combined with the fact that it's out there somewhere and there's only going to be one of them, um, is, is the sort of, you know, going back to what you said about personal quests, you know, that's the sort of thing where if I could pull that off, I'd consider that a, about as good a day's work as I'm, I'm capable of doing. How could you even find that? Is that just pure, like, do you have skills that would allow you to do that, or is that just going to be a pure luck? You make me sound like Liam Neeson. Um, taking you. Um, it, it Out of is, a certain set of skills yeah. to find rare books. <laughs> um, I will find it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a combination of things. I mean, we, we happen to have a big specialty in children's books and deal in a lot of Roald Dahl first editions. So there's a certain case of if somebody's going to find it, it's likely going to be us, just with the volume of things we get through. There's also the volume of books that, that we look at. I mean, I, I told you at the, earlier on that we look at maybe 10,000 books for every one that we buy. Um, that's, an, that's an awful lot to get through when you're buying, you know, thousands of books a year. Um, so, so with, with, with that kind of hit rate, it helps, but you know, it's, it's no done thing. There are plenty of books in circulation or tucked away on people's bookshelves in this country that the book trade will never, you know, never have a chance to, to feast on. But, um, in that case, you know, it would obviously mean an awful lot if, if one could. Best place to find them. Like, I, I think of garage sales or something, right? Like, are you just scouring every garage sale that you walk past, or like? Um, I don't. I don't mind a low success rate, but I, I going going sort of door to door on garage sales is is probably <laughs> casting the net too wide. Do you know why don't I? 
why don't I rephrase this? So rather than talking about me, let me talk about if someone wants to start collecting books, where should they go? And yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the easiest answer in the world. They should go to bookshops and they should talk to booksellers about what interests them. And then booksellers will find things for you because that's what they do. Um, and they'll call you up and say, oh, I know you're interested in this. Well, let me tell you about this amazing thing that I've just got in. Um, that is by far the best way to to collect books and in terms of where you know where we look for books it's frankly everywhere you know we go to we go to house calls we go to you know impressive private libraries and undistinguished private libraries we go to auctions all over the world we go to book fairs all over the world we go to bookshops all over the world people bring books to us we just we just don't stop this is an, another question that we got but like what is the one that stands out to you or like somebody just brought one in like i found this in my garage or like have you ever had situations like that where somebody like oh my god this person had this thing and didn't even know it uh we we had it with a first edition of the hobbit last year i mean somebody knew knew they had it but essentially their grandmother was given it as a christmas present in 1937 because it was a book that had just come out in 1937. And so that's what she got for Christmas that year. And she'd read it once and put it on the bookshelf. And the book had survived various house moves and relocations and going in and out of boxes as, as you know, life takes its twists and turns. And now, what would that be, 85 years later? Um someone calls us up and says, oh, I have this book of my grandmother's. It's called The Hobbit, and I think it's a first edition. Um, and so we um, we drove over to their house and had a look at it, and sure enough, it was. Um, and we have arguably a longer list of customers for a first edition of The Hobbit than almost any other book printed in the 20th century. It's certainly up there with our, our most sought-after book. And the, the waiting list for one is a, is a long one. Um, so it was something we were incredibly excited to to see and to um, and to manage to um, acquire on behalf of a customer of ours. There's a potentially controversial one. How do you feel about people dog-earing pages? I don't mind at all. I don't mind it at all. Oh, I people, thought you would. Be, I thought that yes, would anger you. This for is some this reason. is quite this is quite an interesting sort of misconception about about books i mean if somebody has a book in their or frankly if someone has a book in their possession they can do what they like with it um i mean if someone comes comes into the shop reads 10 pages of one of my books and then you know folds the corner to come back next week and finish off then i might get a little bit upset but certainly if it's just a book for personal possession do what you like with it because there was this kind of fetishism in victorian book collecting that survived a long way into the 20th century that books should be these sort of untouched objects, you know, to such an extent that in the in the Victorian period, the late Victorian period, people would wash the pages of a book. So let's say that you had a a book which you know an owner a couple hundred years before had you know written annotations or marginalia in exactly the sort of things that are hugely valuable to scholars now. Um, the Victorians would, would wash the pages to make it look kind of pristine and perfect and polished. Um, 
So no, I think people should leave marks of readership in books if that's how they want to interact with books. And then the collectors and scholars and booksellers, you know, of 200 years into the future can get an idea of what people in the 21st century did with their books. I think it's a valuable thing. Um, most interesting stories surrounding a book getting to you. Here's, here's one. I quite like this. So in 1907, there was a British expedition to the Antarctic that is known as the Nimrod Expedition. And it was led by Sir Ernest Shackleton, who is famous for his um, exploits in the Antarctic. And the problem with exploring the Antarctic is you've got a long Antarctic winter when there's no daylight at all. So you have to keep morale up. So what he decided to do was to bring a printing press on a ship to the South Pole. And they had a printing press there. And during the long winter, they made a book. An entire book printed, written, printed and bound in the Antarctic. And it was called the Aurora Australis. And it was the first book printed on the Antarctic continent. So all the paper had to come from London down there. The printing press came from London down there. They had to keep a candle under the ink so it wouldn't freeze in, Ant in Antarctic temperatures. Um, and it's a book of extraordinary beauty, when, especially when one considers the environment that it was made in. And they printed something between 70 and 90 copies of it, and it kept them entertained for a winter. And then the books came back to, um, to London, and some were given away to patrons of the expedition, and others were sold in, in bookshops. And there was a copy of this book that sold um, uh, from a bookshop called Bumpus that had been signed by Ernest Shackleton and had been sold and resold a couple times in the intervening period before it ended up in the um, collection of a man called Steve Fawcett, who was a, a famous explorer in his own right, who built up an extraordinary library of books um, before he, he, he was particularly well known for um, exploring in balloons and he died in a ballooning accident um, and his book plate that still sits in that copy of the book is, um, is, is a hot air balloon um, and so when, you know, when his library was sold we bought that for a customer of ours who at the time was building an extraordinary collection of books to do with polar exploration um, and it felt particularly appropriate that it had been through the hands of not just the great explorers and the heroic explorers of the Antarctic at the start of the 20th century, but also one of the sort of greatest and best known explorers of the second half of the 20th century on its way to us and then on its way to its, um, its current home. Do a lot of those old books, though, kind of when you get down to it, have a story like that? Or are there ever ones that just like, this just sat on a shelf in John's bookstore <laughs> until I found it one day? Like, is there, is there always kind of an interesting story to a lot of them? There often is, if you, if you know where to look for it. I mean, and part of the, part, one of the talents of being a bookseller is, you know, make, making the book interesting, not by making things up, but by doing the research on it. And often anything that has been in the world for hundreds of years has seen some shit 
angina has has had interesting things happen to it um and may well have you know passed through the hands of interesting people there are very very few books that were just you know bought by some duke in 1600 and have sat in his library in his you know manorial library ever since um most books are kind of scrappy and they get out into the world and they um pass through the hands of interesting folks and you know wherever there's that story to tell it's always a a joy to tell it this one just came in (laughs) are there rare books that aren't old what would make a book published recently rare yes well the same things that make a book that was published 200 years ago rare you need a limited supply and an extraordinary high demand and a great example of that is a book published in 1997 called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which was written by a totally unknown author, published in extremely small numbers. The first edition was published in hardback and paperback. There were only 500 hardbacks printed. Now, that's a small supply, even for a book that's only 25 years old. Um, and the that initial scarcity or apparent scarcity, combined with the extraordinary popularity of those books, has made first editions of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone extremely valuable books. And I mean, I'm talking about copies selling for six-figure sums. How can only 500 copies of that book be made? at the? Because... Like, that seems like nothing. Well, at the time, Bloomsbury, who were the publishers who took it on, were... A relatively, certainly compared to where they are now, a relatively small publishing house. One has to be economical in the first print run of a book, see if it finds an audience, and then go big on a on a second print run. Especially when you're talking about a, a debut novel with with no track record. Um, so that's not an uncommon thing to happen. An author's first book will almost always be their rarest um and it's for that reason you know publishers being uncertain of its of its popularity um what what also adds i suppose to the rarity in that case is that a large number of copies of the hardback will have gone straight to libraries rather than to be sold in bookshops because that was an easy way of um selling a, a, a significant proportion of your print run in hardback initially because often people just buy the paperback because it's cheaper and it might come out on the same day or it might come out a few months later um so so in all likelihood that 500 then becomes say 250 or 300 and there are certainly that many people in the world who would want to own a first edition of it and be willing to pay you know a large sum of money for it but but i have to say that is very quickly that is a unique phenomenon in modern publishing you know there are very very few books published in the entire 20th century that are of an equivalent value monetarily so if you were one of the very lucky people who happened to buy a first edition of harry potter when it first came out then all power to you but you know there might not be a an equivalent phenomenon in the next hundred years is there any could have been stories that you have like this book would have been 
very rare, very valuable, but it just had, oh, it was missing a page or um, anything like that. I mean, completeness is is hugely important to um, to a book. So if it's missing a page, that kind of falls at the first hurdle. So what, one of the first things that I'm I'm looking at when I'm well, certainly when we take a book in for stock, is we do something called collating it, which is, in simple terms, making sure all of it's there. So we go through every single book page by page to make sure it's complete, and then we note any condition issues that might appear throughout it. Maybe there's a, a tear to page you know, 90 or whatever. Um, in terms of could-have-been stories, there was... I'll tell you about one that we came across... A few years ago, we were offered by email a first edition of Animal Farm by George Orwell that was purported to be inscribed by George Orwell for a woman with whom he'd had an affair. So a very interesting association in the scope of Orwell's Orwell's life and, and biography. Um... So we were very quick to say, we'd love to see it. Can you bring it or send it to us? And the book arrives. And I opened it and immediately said, that's not right. Something was off about the signature and the inscription. This this is a book that, were it cracked, would be worth, you know, tens of thousands of pounds without even thinking about it too hard. Um and we did some due diligence on it because initially you get this um this uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called blink about your sort of initial reaction to things and how often that sort of blink instinctive reaction is the right one but sometimes you have to do a bit of digging to find out why you think that and that's exactly what we did I looked at it and I thought it's not right but then you look closer and the to Eleanor from George had actually been copied very, very closely from a letter that we had sold a few years before that was addressed to Eleanor and then at the end of the letter signed from George. And it was done in the exact same way as the letter was. So when we put two and two side by side, it was clear that someone had, with, you know, a a relatively good hand copied it but then if you really look closely and get it you know get it well photographed and zoom all the way in as if you're looking at it under a microscope you can see that the 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 way the ink gathers on the paper is unnatural when you're signing your name usually it's a fluid process right you if you're signing you know a letter from nick you just write nick Whereas you could see it, the way the ink had gathered on this paper, it had been done really slowly and deliberately. Um, so, And when you go into that depth, you discover that what was a book you were, you know, willing to write a cheque for an awful lot of money for uh, is despoiled and worthless. Was it actually a first edition? Could you tell if that, it was actually a first edition? That was right. Yeah. It was genuinely... A first edition, which is a, um, which is a you know, 
five, six, seven thousand pound book on its own. So Sam Fools oh, just made a costly mistake. Ah, so they basically instead of they they tried to double their money and then said they lost it all, right? And then now it's yeah. But then can that book become if it turns out it's the master criminal of the world, the Moriarty of the whatever century we're in now? Then is that book suddenly like it doesn't become it? It doesn't become. I mean, it can become a curiosity. There was a, a famous bookseller called Thomas Wise who was operating in the in the late 19th, early 20th century, um, who became a master forger of, of books to the extent that someone can be and would, you know, run off prints of, of pamphlets that people had thought were lost forever and forge signatures and mix books together to... Um, um, to sort of fake up copies um and he was he was found out in a in a sort of very scholarly paper that was published um and those sort of famous forgeries have a certain cachet um and is an interesting thing to collect because the history of forging things is an interesting history and it's part of rightfully a part of book history but it doesn't make it anything like the real thing in terms of in terms of monetary value. And if we're talking about, I mean, Wise was interesting because he was doing it with with sort of entire objects, you know, like a whole pamphlet or something. Um, if we're just talking about a, a, a signed signature, uh, it, it just makes the book a total non-starter. Um, it doesn't mean that someone won't buy it thinking it's the real thing. Is there a holy grail? Is there like, everybody is looking for this. We know it somewhere. If I find this, I will be the coolest person at the Antiquarian Book Dealers Convention. There are a few such things. I can actually... What, I, I can tell you something that actually... I'll, I'll tell you a, a real story about something that um, that happened recently and it made someone the coolest person at the Antiquarian Booksellers Convention. So in New York, every winter, uh, in well, it's sort of in March or April, there's the New York Antiquarian Book Fair. And I was uh, a couple of weeks out before the fair, I saw an article pop up from the New York Times saying that a, um, a, a an American and a London bookseller had between them acquired the final lost manuscript of Charlotte Bronte, um, who, uh, who, when she was young, would produce these tiny little books of poems and little stories and things. And these were sold at auction in the late 19th, early 20th century and had truly been scattered to the four winds. And over the intervening hundred years, they have slowly made their way back um, to the Bronte Parsonage Museum at the house where the, the Bronte sisters um, lived. Um, but there was this one that everyone knew existed because we can see in the auction catalogue from, from sort of 1914, 1917 um, that it had been sold, but no one knew where it was. Um, and then it appeared 
in a booth at the New York Antiquarian Book Fair this April. Um, and that was a very, very cool thing to, to see in person. And particularly since there's a happy ending to the story, which is to say that um, the Bronte Parsonage Museum, with the um, quite significant help of a fabulous organisation here in the UK called Friends of the National Libraries, managed to acquire the book from them and return it home. Um, so that sort of thing. And there are equivalent lost manuscripts for a whole series of authors um, that would be wonderful to find. Writers like you know, Jane Austen and, and, and so on that um, it would be wonderful to, to uncover. That's pretty much all the questions we got, man. Is there anything that we you think we missed or people want to know more? How can they find you? How can they find the shop? All that stuff. Okay. Well, the shop I work for is called Yonkers Rare Books in Henley-on-Thames. We have an open shop, so anyone is welcome to come and visit. Um, and we also have a website where we have all of our stock listed. That's yonkers.co.uk. Um, and if you want to um, keep up with what I'm doing, then I'm on TikTok and Instagram. Uh, and my at is Tom. W. Ailing. I want to thank Tom so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And we have also included his information in the episode description. Go to the website there and you can go through and see the histories and the prices of some of the rare books that they have for sale. It's it's really interesting to see it. It really is. So I want to take a moment and tell you about a show that we recently found that I think is fascinating. It's called Pretend, and it's our documentary-style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. One of their most recent episodes centers around Frank Abagnale, who is the guy from the movie Catch Me If You Can. His real story, though, might not be what you've heard. Do you remember the movie Catch Me If You Can? Well, apparently, a lot of people think that this movie is based on a true story, but I found out it's 98% BS. Frank Abagnale says that he posed as an airline pilot, he was a doctor, and he wrote $2.5 million in bad checks. But after doing a little digging, it turns out that Frank Abagnale's story is a lie. And I have the documents to prove it. You see, I've been trying to get Frank Abagnale on my podcast for five years now. So if he won't come to me, well, I'll just have to go to him. Hey, Mr. Abagnale, for six years you evaded the, the FBI, uh, pretending to be a pilot, a doctor, a professor. But how were you able to do that if you were sitting in prison the whole time? Uh... Just recently, I flew out to Vegas and confronted Frank Abagnale after one of his keynote speeches. This is the real Catch Me If You Can. And I'm going to expose his lies one by one. And I have the police records, court records, all the documents I need to prove he's a fraud. Look for the episode titled The Real Catch Me If You Can. Only on Pretend. Okay, now let's bring in John Shaw and get to the pointless part of the show. Okay, what's what's the rarest thing that you own? Rarest thing I own, um, probably a couple of sports cards that are uh, that are pretty expensive. Um, those are probably the rarest things I own. How much money are we talking? 
probably a few thousand dollars a piece. Uh, I will say that I have some like full collections of things, um, like Beanie Babies, etc. But those aren't really like sought after anymore. I don't think. How do you feel as a thirty-five-year-old man walking past your collection of Beanie Babies? <laughs> Uh, that someday I'm hoping it pay, they pay for my kids' college, which they won't, because they mass mark or mass produce the shit out of them. What kind of beanie babies do you have? Like, can you give me some of the names of the various beanie babies? I mean, uh, oh gosh, uh, Peanut, the elephant, that was one. Um, Peanut, the elephant. <laughs> No, I, I no, I mean I don't really remember. Uh, you know, there's well, there was Aaron, right? Aaron was the St. Patrick's Day bear. Glory was another bear. Uh, yeah, I mean, whatever. Uh, what about you? What, what, Wait, you have any were the Beanie Babies all bears? No, but the bears were often the ones that were m- worth more at the time. Mm-hmm. There's also, you know, there's a couple others that are worth more or worth a lot, but uh, you know, you you have to have the ones that were made in 1995. Might have had an error on them. Do you really? You ever think about this? The the collectibles that are worth the most usually are either the ones that are prototypes or the ones that are effed up. Does well, that make yeah. any sense? Yeah, I th- I mean it does. I think, and not to make fun of you, but it does if you really think about it, right? Because the ones that are like that are rare. There's not as many of them, right? Like that's why some of the most valuable things are. Stuff that's like messed up. What is uh, something that you collected that you have no idea why you were collecting it? I collected comic books, but I legitimately liked the stories. And then when my mother passed away, I told my father, don't sell my comic books. And he proceeded to then send me a check for $23.60 for my comic books. Oh, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Yeah, there's the only thing. I was like, hey, just don't sell my comic books. It's the only thing I care about. Don't sell them. Hey, I sold your comic books. For $23? $23.60. I did cash that check, though, and I bought one comic book for my son with it. So I guess there's some good that comes about that. But okay, if you had, if you suddenly got a bunch of money, like what's something that like, ooh, I wanted this collectible item. I'm going to buy it for myself. Oh, man. I mean, there's so many. Um, it would probably be something uh, um, like a relic of some sort. Like maybe part of, a, you know, like maybe a, a chair from a stadium or like a piece of a wrestling ring mat or something. You know, something like that. I would think that that would actually be kind of cheap. It, it, I mean, they could be. Um, except there's only so many and they're, you know, they're hard to keep in good condition. I would think I would also probably finish collections. Like if I had the money, I'd buy every figure I wanted, you know, every die cast car I wanted, every dildo that I wanted. What? Um, anyways, you know, I would buy certain things that I've always wanted. It probably isn't that part of the collectible, uh, like the rush. It is having to buy it, having to wait for it, having to, you know, if you have an influx of money or, or whatever and you just buy everything, I feel like that you're not collecting at that point. You're just rich. Yeah. See, if I had my way, I wouldn't collect anything. I would get rid of everything. That would I would have a collection of nothing. 
Like that would be my goal. Like let's get rid of all of this stuff. Are you ready for the shout outs? The sh- shout outs, 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 outs. Oh, we'll get into this a little bit next episode, but we got a voicemail. Um, <laughs> oh boy. About the sound that you make when you do the shout outs. Oh but no. That person was also making, uh, pointed out something about it I do that I have noticed. And they're like, oh, I wonder if other people notice that. I say necessarily oh. a lot for no reason. Wow. Somebody is critiquing the way you speak now? Oh, no. I would say that it's pretty. If you listen to a number of episodes, I would think that that's probably something that we're like, man, he says that a lot. I mean, what? I'm okay. trying my hardest not to smack my gums right now. What is lips. something? What's something that you do that you hope people don't notice? Bite my fingernails. Mm. Like I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it at work. I'll do it in meetings. I'll do it at the grocery store. Like I'll do it anywhere. The weird thing is, I think that everybody probably does notice. They just don't point it out to you that you notice, and then you go about thinking that people haven't noticed, but they've noticed. They're, they're like, look at that that big guy over there trying to eat his hand. He must be really hungry. Man, that guy. He must be just first day of a new diet because he's about to eat his fingernails <laughs> off. That's how hungry he is. Hey, man, you, you got to watch out. I'll you get you. Be... All right, let's let's uh, let's let's stop talking about me. Let's uh, give some shout-outs here. Uh, Jim Hoffman, uh, David Walker, uh, Barbell You're doing it Brand- again. You're doing it again. Fuck. <laughs> All right, let's try. Let's let's try that again. Oh fuck! You just did it right there. Oh, uh, it's impossible, okay. man. Don't get a complex about it. Just hold on. Let me get a drink, and I'm going to try to do it without just closing. My don't lips. think about it at all, but also think about it so that you don't do it. All right, I'm going to try so to be natural but unnatural at the same time. <laughs> I'm trying to be natural. All right, uh, Jim Hoffman, David Walker, you did Leslie it. Doss, Jose Rodriguez, fuck, I just did it, <laughs> Ian Younts, uh, Brendan Murphy, or uh, Barbell Brendan, love that uh, ha- that handle, uh, Phil Bond, Nathaniel Figueroa, and Chucky Wright. Appreciate all of you. Okay, uh, if your if your handle. Is Barbell Brendan. How much do you have to bench oh, to have man. Barbell in your username? I mean, if... if let's if let's assume let's assume he's 25. Because obviously it's different for a 16-year-old or for like a 55-year-old. But let's assume he's 25. <laughs> okay. How much does Barbell Brendan have to bench to have mm. Barbell in his name? At least a good, a good set of 225. At least eight or more. Oh, okay. He's got to rep it out. I was going to say you yeah. got to put you got to push three fifteen. I mean three fifteen is getting up there. Um, I, I'd, I'd say a good set of two twenty five. You're that's all right, Barbell Brandon. Is two twenty five though? Okay, I now look two twenty five is a good amount, right? And John mm-hmm. and I aren't meatheads talking about bench press, but two twenty five, like all right, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, that's not bad. But is that good enough for a guy with barbell in his hash <laughs> in his social media handle? I don't think it is. I think two twenty five is solid for anybody. But if you're gonna have barbell in there, you got to be three fifteen. You got to be three wheels inside. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I mean, if you're gonna go, uh, yes, if you're gonna go ahead and put yourself out there, 
and have a, a specific word in your handle like that, then you better show up. You better bring it. We got to know. We're going to have to reach out to Barbell Brendan and find out how much he benches. <laughs> well, post a video for us, Barbell Brendan. I, I yeah, want to see it. We need video evidence. Yeah. Because otherwise, that doesn't count. Anybody can fake it. Yeah, any, okay. A, including the women we're with. <laughs> I'm just, man, I'm on it tonight. Man, somebody has a vodka seltzer out of a can. and Look Ooh. at him go. You know, I, I tell you, this is my fourth one tonight, so I'm doing well. Um, uh, all right, I got a couple of uh, bangers for you. Uh, would you rather have three hands or three feet? Three hands? What the hell am I going to do with three feet? You could I got to buy an extra pair of shoes. <laughs> then you're always going to have one extra shoe. But right? I mean, then you're going to have to buy another pair of gloves. What are you, you going to do with these? Oh, what do you use more? What do you use more, shoes or gloves? I mean, I, I mean, obviously shoes, but gloves are close. They're not. No, that they're far. not. They're nowhere close. How many pairs of gloves do you go through a year? How many pairs of shoes do you go through a year? Well, I'm the wrong person to ask because I only buy like two pairs of shoes a year. But trying to say this objectively, you know, what's an average person? What would you say an average person goes through in terms of the amount of shoes per year? Five it's to actually, ten pairs? No. You're buying extra shoes every two months? I, I am not, no. I, I just said it. I only go through two pairs a year at most. I think that that's one of the signs that you're getting older in life is that you don't go through as many pairs of shoes. <laughs> I'm two or three pairs a year tops. Okay. Tops. I mean... The problem is I, I go through work shoes a lot because that's what I'm in most most of the day. Like my my sneakers and my cross trainers. What a dumb name for a shoe, by the I've way. I've never heard somebody call them cross trainers before. Why don't you just call them shoes? I don't even use the word sneakers. I just say my shoes. You've also never said blue jeans and you continue to rip on me every time I say it. Because so. it's unnecessary. But it's, but, it's a, but it's a word, but it's a phrase that's used commonly. No, it's used, but I don't think that it is used commonly. I've never heard of anybody say, okay, let me get my blue jeans on. Unless they're I mean, specifically referring to a blue pair of Homer Simpson colored jeans. Like if you say, I'm going to get my blue jeans on and you come back with just regular jeans, maybe like, well, where's the blue ones? They better be like blue like the sky. <laughs> I mean... Which they're not. They're all, they're often denim and, and royal blue or navy blue, but it's fine. Uh, all right, moving on. Uh, would you rather wear a schmedium shirt or skinny jeans? Schmedium shirt. Yeah. I mean, yeah. hell, that was my outfit for all of my 20s. Schmedium? Oh, yeah. Schmedium skinny jeans? Oh, no. Well, I uh, no. You, you have the body type that's better suited, way better suited than me for skinny jeans. And I might be the only one in this conversation that's ever worn skinny jeans. Not only have I never worn them, I've never even thought about it. Like, never been at the store and be like, let me just try these on to see what this would be like. Like, never in my life have I ever thought to myself, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and buy these skinny jeans. Or even like, if you checked my entire Google browser history, at no point would you find the words skinny jeans on there. <laughs> Lots of porn, though. Lots of porn. 
lots of other random searches, but no skinny jeans whatsoever. I want to say that's one thing that like never in my entire life out of curiosity or necessity have I ever looked up skinny jeans at all. Uh, well, I can tell you I never looked them up, but I did own a pair, uh, which lasts four or five, which lasted all of one and a half nights, I think. Yeah, um, shouldn't have that should have, this whoever sold them to you should have prevented you from buying them and been like, no, sir, these aren't for you. Did you? <laughs> I just imagine what I must have looked like walking down the street. It must have been a goddamn clown show, like a uh, pair stuffed into a pair of pants. <laughs> Well, now I'm like an extra and I'm like one of those uh, extra fruity pears. You know, I have a little bit of water to me now, so it'd be even worse, I think. Um, all right. So, listen, we asked you all to to pick what we should talk about. This is a favorite segment. <laughs> of the... Are you drunk right now? No. Why? What did I say? What have I do? Because you got this slight eye thing that people have when they're drunk, right? That like slightly glazed over look <laughs> of drunkenness that only sober people can look and tell be like, Oh, he's a little drunk right now. But once you've had alcohol, you can't notice it in other people. <laughs> no, I'm completely sober. Uh, so anyway, so we asked you uh, to, to choose what we're going to talk about here. Uh, the choices this week were uh, Oktoberfest coming back after a two year hiatus. Uh, talk like a pirate day. Or matey. Uh, something random or the queen's funeral. <laughs> I was hoping anything but the queen's funeral would have gotten picked. And of course, of course, that's the uh, the topic that got picked uh, was qu- the queen's funeral. Uh, and there was actually a decent amount of people who voted. So appreciate that. It's on Twitter. Goes up midday Monday usually. Uh, so check it out next Monday. Let us, uh, you know, l- fill in. Let us know. Uh, so listen, I want to make this a little fun. Obviously, the queen, uh, you know. 107 years old, been reigning for 88 years. She really 107? No, not at all. How uh, old she was, was she? 96, I believe. Yeah. Uh, reigned for 73 years, something like that. I don't know, 72 years. Um, but listen, I wanted to, you know, obviously she was laid to rest. But I want to I say a couple of things to you. And I want you to tell me if they're true or false about the queen. Okay. Uh, true or false, Queen Elizabeth used to be a trucker. Well, I mean, not in any kind of sense that we no, would consider no, no, to no. be it's a just, trucker. Is true or false? Well, right? then, Don't... yeah, she probably knows how to drive a truck or something like that. Oh, hell, my light just, <laughs> just fell. <laughs> oh, no. Light just fell. Some guy has one vodka soda, and look at him. No, he's like, well, pick <laughs> it. you try pick it back up. I mean, we can just wait and record a program. I can stop it. Start it again. Give me a second. We have the technology. Fucking Samwell Tarly. (laughs) Coming back. Coming back. Okay, so was she a trucker or not? She was a trucker, yes. Yeah, but in like in what capacity, right? Like she's not really a trucker. It's not like she's driving big rigs across Great Britain. No, and she served in the military. She was a uh, truck driver. Okay. That's all I got. Um, Is that the only question you had about the queen? No, but like why am I blue for (laughs) What is happening? I have no idea what's going on over there. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't even like know what's happening right now. 
Um, the amazing thing about it is like this is a fully automated system. Literally, all you have to do is turn the fucking thing, go to the web address, <laughs> click on it. That's all you have to do. I, I got what's happening. All right, just let's just keep moving. Um, I told you, you look God, how many did you have? Oh, I've only had one. I'm completely sober. Um, all right, uh, true or true or false? Uh, she had a breed of dog named after her. Uh, that's probably true. A corgi. That is, that is also true. Yes. Um, uh, no, that it's not a corgi. It's called a dorgy. After one of her corgis bred with her sister Margaret's Dashhund. Okay, cool. Uh, true or false? Glad to know that. <laughs> I mean, listen, this. this is what the people wanted to hear. I mean, we can. I mean, is this what the people wanted to hear? <laughs> then, then, then tell me your thoughts on on the queen. Then let's hear them. I think it's sad when any ever somebody dies. That's what I think. I don't really get America's obsession with it. I don't know why we're so interested in it. I think it's one of those things that the media rams down our throats, right? Like the media is going to cover it and cover it and cover it and cover it again until you eventually finally start wondering, well, what is going to happen with this thing? That's what I think happens with a lot of things in the media. People don't actually care. The media just continues to cover it until eventually people are kind of like, well, what is going to happen, right? It's kind of like if your wife or significant other or somebody you know is always telling you about their friend. Eventually, if they tell you about it enough, you are going to ask a question about that friend, even if you don't care whatsoever. My wife has a friend named Monica. I don't know who Monica is, what she looks like. I don't know anything about her, but I'll occasionally ask, like, oh, what's Monica do? I mean, I, I think we know what why Americans are obsessed I mean, the royals, quote unquote, have the perfect life, right? History, legacy, wealth, power, money. And then you watch the queen on uh, or the crown on Netflix and you realize the whole family is actually kind of effed up. It is kind of cool if you see some TV shows or things like that where you see like the tradition and the elegance of things. And like when something's really nice, like you go to like a big marble museum or something, you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. There's my thoughts on the queen. That that you know that was that was Thanks elegant. Thanks for bringing that up. And that what was... are you? What are your thoughts on the queen? I mean, I'm a sucker. I'm I'm in on it, man. I love the royal family. I, well, I love, I appreciate the royal family. I understand. I believe the royal family. Um, I, I think it's kind of irrelevant moving into the new millennia. I mean, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, great. Uh, but now, I mean, I, I how many territories was she actually ahead of? Like. 12, 11, when she was 30 plus 20 years ago. Um, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I thought Charles abdicated and now he's going to be the king or is the king. Who's Charles? So, that's that her, her husband. <laughs> no, but that's, that's her. That's her oldest son who is uh, now the so king. Who's the, who's the other kids that who's the bald, the guy that what used to be really good looking, but then went bald. And that like, is damn. Uh, that, <laughs> that is man Charles, needed hair. That is Charles's oldest son, William, who is married to Kate, right? Oh, who's oh, who's the one that's kind of like the black sheep that the Harry, of the family who's married oh, to okay. Megan. Okay, Megan Markle to be exact. Line of succession would be Charles, William, or is Charles, William, William's sons, and then and then it goes to Harry. So. Do you yeah. know more about the queen or BB baby, Beanie Babies? 
The royal <laughs> family or Beanie Babies? Ah, uh, the Queen, I'd say. I'm not well versed in Beanie Babies. I I got into a mini debate this afternoon uh, about the most recognizable person on the planet, and I said the Queen would be top three of those. The most recognizable, well, probably now would honestly be Donald Trump. I well, think pretty much everybody knows or has heard of that. Before then, I think it was. I want to say that the Tiger Woods was up there as one of the most recognizable people on the planet at one time. And Barack Obama, I think. I think the U.S. president is generally one of the most recognizable. And probably the queen. But the thing is, is like, yeah, probably the queen is up there. Where would you put the queen? I mean, she's top three. I mean, I I would. My list was God or Jesus. Nobody knows what he looks like. No, but but you know, let you know him. Everyone knows the name. Everyone knows. I don't want to say character, but everybody knows Jesus. Everyone oh. has an everyone has an idea of what Jesus looks like. So you're and, saying just name recognition? Well, yeah, yeah, like just recognition in general. Like if mm. if 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 we were to go, if we were to record an episode in Rwanda right now, and we were to ask random folks in Rwanda. If they knew the queen and Jesus or know of them, they're going to say, yeah, they might not know Barack Obama or Donald Trump. I kind of agree with you, though, that those two probably are known. Don't don't go to the Hitler. Do you want to know what the number one that they said number one was? I don't know how you could put Jeff Bezos ahead of the rock. I don't I think Jeff Bezos is a name that people know, but not. Like, you wouldn't be able to pick him out of a crowd. Once again, I, I don't even think in his field would he be number one around the world. I think Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are more notice or, or have more name recognition around the world than he does. Well, you actually know what they look like, right? I would put Elon Musk in that uh, category of, like, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and uh, who's the other person you said? Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. You actually know what they look like. Like, you know who Jeff Bezos is, but then when you see a picture, that's him. Like, you know, you said movie stars. I don't I wouldn't even say and I've made this argument on here before, probably sounding dumb. uh, The Rock, maybe, but there aren't really any. I mean, maybe Tom Cruise. Yeah. Movie stars, maybe Tom Hanks. But like, I don't think people in Mongolia are going to know who Tom Hanks is. Okay, are you ready for our top five? Yeah, let's do it. All right, our, our top five is top five collectibles. Uh, my number five are stamps. Okay, I can stamp to me is the nerdiest allowable collectible. I don't think stamps are nerdy at all. I think they represent a time and moments and things. I don't think they're nerdy, but it's it's venturing into that territory, and I don't mean nerdy in a disrespectful sense, but like, oh, you're getting a little nerdy there. <laughs> like that's getting up there and i think that people who like it need to acknowledge the nerdiness of it it goes both ways right all right what what's your number five ticket stubs concerts games that kind of stuff all right i i have a shadow box full of stubs so i i get it i'm what? i'm on board with that what's a shadow box it's just a it's literally just a box that you can put ticket stubs and things it has a clear has a uh, clear um like glass or plexiglass on one side and then the solid back and you can just look in it and see things and hmm. I don't know how to describe it. 
wasn't my I've never idea. heard of it before. I didn't know. I, th- I thought I I didn't know it was a specialized thing. Is it specifically for collectibles? Uh, I mean, you can. It's a multi-purpose uh, accessory, but yes, it's supposed to be for. Uh, oh wow! Oh, that's a real thing. Okay, okay. <laughs> keep it nice, but also keep it there, right? So people can see it. Uh, what's your number four? Uh, music, uh, like CDs, cassettes, records. You know. Oh yeah, that should that would probably be pretty high up there. Yeah, for sure. Okay. My number four is scars, because <laughs> that's life experience right there. Is what that is. I love that. I'm I'm gonna make that my honorary number one because that that I mean that's fantastic. But scars. Um. What, what's your scars. what's your best scar that you have? Oh, I have a. You can't really see it. Maybe you could see it a little bit, but I have a good one. Um, I was hit by a car. And by hit by a car, I mean, I. what I really mean by that is I was an eight-year-old who put his head down while riding a bike and rode it right into a fucking parked car and it split my skull. The number of stitches goes up every single time I tell it, but I believe yeah. the actual answer is either 36 or 72. <laughs> and it's it's massive. Like First it goes off, all the way across my yeah. head. Yeah, your you're, little Nick did not get 72 stitches, man. Yeah, oh, that, no, I cracked my skull, like, all the way. I remember that, first of all, if you're ever, if you are a medical professional listening to this, don't tell an eight-year-old that you can see their brain. <laughs> Not good medical bedside manner. <laughs> oh, man. All right. All right. Um, I, I legitimately probably should have died. Like, it's one of those things, like, holy fuck, you lived through that? Imagine, like, riding your bicycle. As Think, think of how fast you ride your bike into head first into a fucking parked car and that didn't kill you like that's pretty surprising that somebody could live through that do you remember what kind of car it was that you ran into old station wagon oh man so there's a giant metal box metal much. and this is like a 1970s 1980s car just like metal i remember Ooh. look i remember like hitting it i don't remember pain or anything like that but i remember looking at my bike going like I don't remember my bike having all those red paint marks on it. <laughs> and well, you added them. You're just trying to give it a little character. Just trying to give it a little character. So that's it's a pretty nasty scar. Do you what's your best scar? Scar off. Oh, um, I don't think you can really see it anymore, but above my left eyebrow or left above my left eye, I got uh, 15 stitches. I was at a baseball camp and we were doing tea work. And I walked into a uh, into a guy's backswing, and the uh, the bat cut my eye completely open. And uh, you know, the doctor the doctor said, you know, as I, I think they say every time to someone who's pretty seriously injured, uh, you know, if it would have been a, a half centimeter lower, you would have lost your eye. Um, but your eye was bleeding. It was, I mean, the skin was just hanging there, flapping. Um, oh, all right. But you know, the I tell people that I mean, I, I've had a decent amount of injuries um you know not that many but the worst part of every time you have to get stitches is when they give you i, I don't i don't know what it is but when they numb the area but like they they stick the needle in the wound to numb it and i will never forget that like watching them put a needle <laughs> into my head um i mean it went numb and i got stitches uh of course but man 
uh, the, yeah, same thing. I, I sliced my, I filleted my thumb one time, uh, trying to cut some limes for, for, uh, for a drink. And, uh, man, when they stick that needle in there to numb it, I'll never forget it. That was worse than any injury. Yeah. My dad was a family physician, so I didn't get the numbing shots. It's like, <laughs> you don't, you don't need it. I mean, listen, Papa Vincent, you know, he's, he's like Papa show. They don't mess around. They're a no. different breed of men. They don't fuck around. That hurt like hell. Uh, okay. What's your number three? Uh, I have dolls, but I mean, I mean, what like dolls, like antique dolls, but Barbie dolls, just any kind of dolls, really. That to me though, is probably, and I think that people who collect dolls, if there's somebody listening, they need to acknowledge it, that that's a little if the doll is too human-like, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is... That's I mean, great it, that you have that, but I'd rather not see the collection. It, it is definitely one of those things to where, like, y- you stop and you think and you go, why, you know, w- why do you have these? Like, what, what, <laughs> what pleasure do you get out of having 15 lifelike baby dolls? Like, just sitting at the bottom of your bed. It's weird. Now... To be fair, don't you have wrestling collectibles? Wrestling I do, action figures? but those are action figures, not oh, dolls. No, they're not. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, so now, since they're action figures, are you still actively like moving their arms around? Off the top <laughs> rope. Do you I, have a I, ring? Do you have a ring for them? I, I do. I, I have multiple rings, actually. How many rings do you have? Four. That's... At least one, possibly two, too many. It's okay to have a backup ring, but I don't think that you need two other ones. Are they the same? God, if you have two of the same rings, I'm, I'm no, no. But I, I do have rings for the size of figure. So, oh, okay, all to, right. To scale it, anyways. No one gives a shit about this, and I've said some things people don't give a shit about before, but this has to top them. So, what's your number three? Comic books. Remind me of your childhood. They can be a little bit valuable. I'm surprised you put that at number three. I I, I had put money down on in Vegas that that was going to be your number one. Uh, my number one would be that would probably be my number two, but my number one is based on the idea that maybe I might someday have a lot of money. Oh, oh, yeah. okay. All right. What's your number? What's your number two then? Uh, like cars, like classic cars. Um, you know, antique cars, things like that. Uh, and I'm talking about like actual motor, uh, mobiles, automobiles, not, not, uh, you know, uh, like the, the little ones, like actual cars that you can drive. Hmm. Um, I, that actually is my number one, but I would go in a different direction. I would like to collect cars, but have like a fleet of shitty cars that I didn't care about. <laughs> and just like, fucking badass him around like go around a roundabout just screeching the tires <laughs> don't care if i bump up the curb just like all right well i ruined that one let's go to my other car in the fleet have like a station wagon a minivan a shitty truck like i would have a fleet of two to four thousand dollar cars i mean i i've always wanted to enter a demolition derby so if you ever come into money uh, let's do hook it. You up. Let's do it. I could honestly, that's, there have been, for people who wonder what John is like, 
<laughs> there are some things that I think paint him perfectly as a person. A Samuel Tarley from Game of Thrones. The kid who ate glue in class. <laughs> and now a demolition derby driver. Like if you got out of a car, if you told somebody, if you, we had just met and you were like, I'm a demolition derby driver. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes see sense. That, right? Because you got like, you still like to do some shit like that, but you got your stuff together. I mean, you got to own a vehicle. Like it's not easy to be a demolition driver. Like it's still a hobby that you have. We got to talk to a demolition driver. I, I think we do. I, you are not the first person that when this has come up has told me that, you know, that I, I, I could be one. I, I could be a demo driver or a truck driver, takes. just something like that. I could see you being a truck driver too. Yeah. Not long haul, short <laughs> trips. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. Short trip, short trip, truck driver. Short trip, truck. <laughs> That's Sure. Uh, okay, that was my number one. My number two, though, is uh, cards. Like okay, cards well, you get from other people. I collect those. Oh, like Hallmark cards? Not Hallmark cards. Like ones my kids bring home from school. And they say, love you, Dad, on it. Keep that oh, shit. Okay. I okay. throw that away. <laughs> I do throw a lot of them away. They come that, back, like, that's actually kind of my number one, are our family keepsakes. Yeah. Well, are those mementos or are those collectibles? I don't know the difference. I thought they were one and the same. No, I think a memento um, is something that meant something to you. Mom. I don't know how to spell memento. How do you, ma, it's moment, M-E-M. but with an O instead of a, you know. I was a movie at one point. Memento. memento. Man. Oh, God. So I'll just... Something that serves to warm or remind. A souvenir. So it is different than a collectible. Okay. Was your, what was your number one? Family collectibles. <laughs> What's in your honorable mention? <laughs> uh, let me see. Uh, trading cards. Uh, coins. Uh, comic books. Uh, and then I... I got this off the internet, uh, but I I, uh, I thought it was good, uh, like antique furniture, um, and then and then books as well. Yeah, the only thing that I would, I mean, the ones that I've heard too is like people collect watches. Yeah, you have enough it. money, I guess. I mean, vintage toys too. Uh, you know, you could probably put. I mean, that should be on the list probably, but like a stick. Like a pet rock, a chia pet. What is a vintage toy? It sounds boring. It's basically just a piece of wood. Yeah, I mean vintage toy, right? Like the uh, holding a cup. Woo! <laughs> fucking amazing. Jacks or whatever they're called. Remember Jacks? Nope, never. I don't think I've ever played that. Uh, well, that's because you're from Derby, Kansas. Okay, that's gonna go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Real quick. We are on YouTube now, so if you want to see some of the things that we've talked about, check out our YouTube channel, Profoundly Pointless, on YouTube. Let us know what you think are some of the best collectibles. I don't really think that our list was that great, to be honest with you, so I'm sure you guys can do better. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.